You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. What is the thread that connects a writer to a reader? On this episode, we start with Paul Vittich, author of The Mercenary, followed by Josephine Baker's Cinematic Prison with the author, Terry Simone Francis, and we close with just a thought, commentary, but a good friend of the program, writer Tom Clayton. I want to give you something about from Publishers Weekly because I respect what they review. And this was a star review, by the way. And this, I'll see if I can get this correctly. And if not, Paul will correct me. Um, this is how it goes. Vidic writes with the nuance, detail, and authority of a career spook. With this outing, Vidic enters the upper ranks of espionage, thriller, writers. And that says a lot about the book. And I think they captured it because I love reading this particular book, Paul. And the first thing I'm going to ask you is, because it fascinates me as a reader, what is the connection between a writer and a reader? Is it like a dance where one leads and the other follows? So you want to follow up on that, Paul Vittich? Uh I've never heard that uh, relationship, but it's like that for sure. The, the writer puts words on a page and those words sort of create an imaginary world. Right. But until the reader comes along and participates by reading words, it doesn't exist. Uh, except sort of as an aesthetic object. Uh, and it has to develop and bl- blossom uh, in the mind of the reader when they're reading those words. And what I found is that not every reader reads the book the same way. I and, agree with that. Yes. And, and, and which is why <laughs> some books can be loved by readers and the same book can be um, disliked by readers. Um, but it is a dance. It's, it's, you're, you're leading by putting words on the page and by creating characters and having stories that develop. And then the reader sort of goes along with that, but they bring, they sort of complete the dance because it's their mind that sort of follows the characters and experiences the emotions of those characters on the page. So and let's kind of let's jump in. Um, this once again, I think it's fascinating if you have 100 people as a sample and you get a hundred different responses to what you do. So, this is going to be my response. To what degree are there puppets and puppet masters in the mercenary, and who really is pulling the strings if they are? Uh, there, there's a complicated question, uh, because the character, the main character, Alex Garin, is a, is a person who found himself somewhat inadvertently in the CIA, um, pushed there by his mother, who was somebody who was a Soviet illegal. So he, he enters under false circumstances and then defects um, and joins the CIA for real. He becomes a, basically a, a double agent. Um, so you could say that his fate started off in the hands of his mother. Right. And then once he was there, um, circumstance and coincidence took over. And it's sort of like when you grow up, 
you find yourself not completely in charge of your life. Your life sort of takes twists and turns and you go along with those twists and turns. And sometimes you have a choice and sometimes you don't. Um, but people who work in the spy business um, are, are a little bit like that. They, they chose to enter the, you know, the CIA or the um, KGB, but then their life sort of follows the course you know, of their careers. Um, so we, that isn't a complete answer <laughs> to the question, but obviously, every, as Bob Dylan said, everybody has a boss. And, All right. So and, that, that's, and there that's, are bosses for sure. Uh, that's an interesting way to go into my next question. I don't know if Raymond Chandler ever said this, but this is the observation I heard. If there's a blonde smoking a cigarette in a hotel lobby, that's trouble. In this book, early on, your main character goes to a cemetery and there's a mysterious woman right next to him. It's late before the cemetery is about to close. He's going there because I don't want to give too much away, but he's going to meet somebody who is about to defect or trying to defect from at that point, the Soviet Union. So in a sense, is that mysterious woman who you created with an interesting backstory, is she going to be trouble? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's interesting because they were both there um, to honor the same man not knowing they were there and not knowing they knew the same man. And, um, and so it's, this is a, a moment where circumstance and chance sort of brought their lives together. And uh, from there, their lives sort of continued to be woven together uh, until the ending of the, uh, of the novel. No, I, I, do think, I do think chance and circumstance operate in our lives and they, you know, and sometimes the best thing that can happen in a novel is that you're surprised by something right. and, and it, it goes off in a direction that you're not anticipating. So this is a craft question. And are you working into what you do as a storyteller, figuring in because there's great reveals in this book, numerous reveals that we take time to find out about. So do you plan your surprises or they unfold as you start to write the book? Uh, it's a little bit of both. I, I'm somebody who needs to know what the ending of the novel is before I begin writing it. Uh, but on the other hand, so I have an outline and I have a sort of a North Star that I'm navigating towards. But as I start writing, um, the characters begin to take over and they take me in, in directions that sometimes surprise me. But they're the direction the character feels comfortable going in. So there are surprises that come along. And if I'm surprised in the writing, the reader is going to feel the same sort of excitement and surprise. So I had a conversation with the author, Craig Unger, the author of American Compromise. So I'm fascinated by the whole machinations between the Soviet Union, now Russia, and the USA. And it's still going on to this day, by the way. So take us back to the mid-1980s. What is going on with the rivalry between the USA and then, then Soviet Union, counterintelligence, spying, power grabs, and computing factions in Russia. Did I capture that correctly? Absolutely. Well, the, the, the Soviet Union um, and the United States became, were allies during World War II, uncomfortable allies, but then became Cold War adversaries um, after Korea. And that sort of defined the second half um, or the first 30 years of the second half of the 20th century. 
And it's a world I grew up in. It's a world you grew up in. Um, I remember um, drop drills in high school um, and in grammar school as we feared the bomb. Under Uh, the desk. We had to go under the desk or in the hallway like that was going to save us. Right. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) As if that would save us. Um, And so we were fascinated by this, this very mysterious, large, you know, enemy in a way that had uh, ideologies that we didn't agree with. Um, and, and what happened by the mid eighties is you saw it was a crumbling society. Right. Um, Samizad and the, you know, the discontents had created a, a world that we, we, you know, saw and didn't like. And then they got bogged down in Afghanistan. You know, I'm fascinated by how writers create a mood. And um, Peter Blauner, I know very well, is a crime fiction writer from New York City, Brooklyn, I think, who lives in right now. He has a scene in one of his books where a young lady is trapped in a basement. She can't escape, and it's during a major storm, and the water is filling up into the basement. And as a reader, I have a really, I had a really visceral reaction in terms of he set that scene up. Now, how do you capture the mood? And I'm going to give a quote from the book and let you respond in terms of getting us engaged and drawing us into your your story in the scene. And it goes like this. Blustery cold made it an afternoon like many in February. And that alone captured my attention. I want to know how you make us feel something that's on the page but it's weather. We all experience weather. Do you think about that in terms of the process of storytelling? I like to write scenes. I think scenes are the sort of building blocks of novels. And I think it's important to start a scene to be able to give the reader a sense of the place and the time and the the sort of visceral qualities of a moment to to give them a way of getting into the mood. So I, I don't think you want to spend a lot of time on the weather. Um, but on the other but hand... But it's Moscow. It's Moscow. But, it's, it's but you want to be able to remind readers where they are. And Moscow in February was cold. And, and, and cold, spy, you know, covert activities, those things go together. Um, so I do also like, you know, it, it's very important when you write to remind the reader of the things that are going on so they have a sense of the time and place. And it's important to give smells. It's important to give taste. It's, in order to, it's important to describe the visual setting that they're in. And weather is a part of that. You feel the cold. You see the cold. You, and, and what you hear, all of that becomes a part of the craft of, you know, creating an immersive moment. So that's interesting that you put it that way, that you verbalize that. So as a writer, because you're working in a bubble, everybody knows about bubbles these days with COVID. Are you engaging your own senses to create these scenes? I know some people listen to music. I know a lot of people don't listen to any book in the same genre or read a book in the same genre. So as you, because you fascinate me. By the way, I want to remind my audience, my guest is Paul Vittich. The book is called The Mercenary. How do you engage your senses to create what you do? I, uh, I try and... It's almost, for me, I like to, to create something that is akin to looking at a movie. 
Um, and I think The Third Man sometimes, a, a classic movie. And whenever I see that movie, I, I think of a particular type of Vienna. It's cold, it's post-war. Right. And, um, and so when I write a scene, I try and picture the scene and create with words the picture that I have of the scene. And the most important thing you can do is sort of, again, as we talked earlier, give enough information about the scene to allow the reader to complete the scene. Something that is overly described turns the reader off. Um, and you really need to only tell enough to be able to get to the place where the reader sort of appreciates what's going on. Now, I spent a lot of time with another writer who writes crime fiction, Ed Reed Farrell Coleman. And I'm fascinated by character development. How many characters are the right number in a book? Just what's too many? What's, you know, what's not enough? And he said something that's very interesting. One of his latest books, there's a scene that goes right by my house. It's literally a few blocks away from my, where I live. And he said his settings are also his characters. I'm going to throw out a few settings and let you amplify on that. Um, we have obviously Moscow. We have Moscow Station. We have Spasso House. I can't pronounce this name, but a very important cemetery in the book, Red Square, Amusement Park. In your own mind, are these also characters? Absolutely. Um, I think cities are characters, and within a city, situations are characters. And in fact, what you were describing are the titles for my chapters. And I tried to, I like to be able to, to it's almost like a stage play where you, you, the curtain opens and you see the, the furniture, or you see the setting, and it immediately evokes something in you. And then the characters come on and then the characters play out the scene. I sort of try and do the same thing with my chapters. They tend to be immersive. They sort of have, uh, they open up trying to answer the question of the previous chapter and then end with their own question. But in the meantime, the characters in the chapter are going through whatever crisis or character development um, is important to take the story forward. All right, so I'm going to paraphrase Nietzsche, and this is something that I've read about and thought about an awful lot, especially in the kinds of books that you write that are a little more nuanced than just a lot of violence and the pages turn really quickly, although the pages turn quickly in your book too, even though my process is I read, I take notes, I read, I take notes, but if I was just reading it, I would just go through it. And Nietzsche said, be careful you don't become the monster you are chasing. Is, it, is this applicable to some of your characters? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I, I chose to write about spies because they operate in this sort of liminal moral world where there are ethical ambiguities about right. their work. And, and, every, and none of my spies are good or bad. They sort of occupy this liminal space um, and, and, it, and they make difficult choices uh, because the work they're doing is, uh, you know, it's this, this thing about the spy business. Um, is really in conflict with what I'll call a democracy. Right. Democracies like transparency, but the spy business requires secrecy, as does in a national security. So when you put men and women into that place, um, it creates all sorts of 
you know, conflicts and, and struggles for them. They have to decide to do things, um, which may run against some of their personal ethos, but it's a part of the job. You know, so spies suborn friends, they lie in the service of truth, and they murder in defense of, you know, uh, democracy. And, and to me, that makes the spy novel a very interesting place to explore, you know, character and, um, and theme. Once again, my guest is Paul Vidic. The book is called The Mercenary. The one thing I like to do is I look at a book two different ways. The story between the covers and the story outside the covers of the book, the writer's story. So I'm going to, I have it right in front of me. I'm going to reference something I printed out that you wrote from Crime Reads. And the title is, What You May Not Know About Your Father, the Spy. <laughs> that is, you're laughing, but it is really fascinating. And I wonder if this is part of your foundation for what you create as a writer. Can you share what this article is about? Yes. Uh, I, um, my father... His parents came from Slovenia, and um, they never went back. But after World War II, my father, um, who had taught at Harvard, earned his PhD at Harvard, went to London. And then with my wife, I mean, his wife, my mother, uh, he took my brother and I as infants to Slovenia. And um, that became a very famous story. And we stayed in touch with our Slovenian relatives. And about 10 years ago, I was with um, my family. We were in Slovenia, and one of my second cousins looked at me. He said, you know, your father was a spy when he came over here in 1950. 1950. And I looked at him, and I said, you're crazy. My father was a professor. There's no way he was a spy. But a couple of years ago, what this second cousin said continued to echo in my mind. So I decided to look into it. And the more I looked into it, the more it became possible that he was probably inadvertently writing a report that would end up with the CIA. And it, it but the, the larger story of it was like, how much do you not know about your parents? Okay. And for me, it was like, I didn't know my parents before I came along and then I probably never knew them as adults until I was, you know, in my 20s, because everything there before that as a child is sort of this prehistory. And it's only later on in your life that you begin to understand who your parents are. So for me, going back and discovering this thing about him was in some ways discovering things about this man, my father, who I had never known um, just because I wasn't around to know. Um, and well, I think that about my own children that way. Right. How much do they know about us uh, as parents? Um, and so it was, a, it was a fun article to write. How do you use that about the unknowns in your life to create, create the books that you write? Because this book, The Mercenary, there's a backstory there about a lot of unknowns about some of the main characters. Right, exactly. And that, and I like to develop the backstory about these characters because we all have backstories and our backstories define who we are today. Um, and, and so in the case of um, Garen, he had this complicated backstory where he, his mother took him from the Soviet Union 
He was raised in the United States. She directed him to join the CIA. But when we see him in the novel, he's back in, in Russia. And he's curious about who, who his father is. Right. He's this character who has a, an American mind, but a Russian heart. And so he finds himself here in the midst of this mission, curious about his own heritage. And it, it's one of the things that sort of drives him forward. And I, I like that idea. Somebody who sort of finds himself, you know, with these personal, uh, sort of personal search at the same time he's in the midst of doing this stuff. Because that's what life is. We all are like that. You know, we have our jobs, but, you know, we end up having all these complicated things that sort of uh, find their way into our, our job life. Um, I'm going to jump ahead because this is not a legal thriller. Well, one of the parts of the book I like was there was a show trial going on. So we don't want to give away too much. But let's talk about how you set the show trial up and what's going on in the courtroom and also behind the scenes. Um, well, behind the scenes, um, Garen was trying to frame a, um, another KGB officer because there had been there was a um, a concern that the character Petrov, who they're trying to exfiltrate, was going to be uncovered. Um, and, and, and so the show trial was a way of um, taking the interests of the KGB and directing them away from Petrov to this other character, Posner. And, um, and there are some details in the trial about uh, some some papers and you know, some bank accounts, um, but it it was um, Alex Garen's sort of manipulation of the Soviet system to be able to um, misdirect them towards um, somebody who wasn't to be exfiltrated and right. taking the attention away from Petrov. For the the writers out there, just readers curious about the Arncrift of storytelling, which fascinates me, by the way. How important is research? I'm going to reference again Joseph Cannon. His last book was called The Accomplice, which I love, too. And he he likes to travel to do his research. So it's part research <laughs> and it's part vacation. And he's been all over the place and it shows up in his books in terms of the details. Have you been to Moscow? Have you been to the Bolshoi Ballet? Have you researched it or you just go online like everybody else and get the details? Well, so the answer is I have not been, um, although I intended to go, uh, but the pandemic hit and um, I wasn't able to go. But even, even having said that, I would typically do a lot of research before I go anywhere to begin with. And, and so that's what I did with Moscow. I sort of was, was curious about Moscow. I, and again, when I research a city or a setting, what I look for are the characters who live in that place. So it's not an illustrator's version of Moscow. It's the Moscow of Petrol. It's the Moscow of Posner. It's the Moscow of my characters. And, and once I'm inside of the head of the characters, what I need to do is, is sort of sketch out their world and, you know, where they live, you know, how they go from one place to another, which bus line they take, do they go to the Bolshoi? And once I do that, I can actually, I think, create a realistic vision of their Moscow 
not my Moscow, their Moscow. And so uh, creating characters, understanding characters in a fully, you know, realized way is my way of, you know, expressing the city that they live in. Right. Earlier on, you've referenced, because I did remember, um, books almost like a stage play. Uh, right. I look at actors and actors talk about stretching their instrument to get better in their craft. As a writer, how do you stretch your instrument and challenge yourself? Because you are respected by a lot of people. I've seen all the blurs in the book and they're, they're real and not just a pat on the back. You write a blur for me, I write a blur for you. So how do you work on stretching yourself even though you're very successful? Uh, I try and, you know, it, the question becomes, how do you tell a story and who's telling the story? And that's a question of time in many ways. And, you know, I think about, you know, novelists I respect, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Right. You know, there's a story, which is a first person story, but you don't really know that because um, it, it, it's the sort of the, the narrative is by the friend of Gatsby and it's being told over the course of a summer. And to some extent, it's being told backwards. Um, so one way I stretch myself is to ask the question, who's telling the story? Why is it being told? And what are the, the, the time dimensions in which I'm operating? And, um, and so in, in this book, um, I do some of that. You know, there's a, you know, there's a flash forward at the end. Um, there is, there are moments along the way in which this character, Garen, makes notes. And if you think hard about this, the question is, where do these notes appear? Well, they appear in the very, the penultimate chapter when this guy Mueller is telling the story about the story. Yes. He's sort of telling you what it's, so you could, if you wanted to stretch your imagination, you could say, this is a story being told by Mueller that he developed by looking at all the notes that this guy, Garen, was making along the way. So to me, one way of stretching myself is to answer the question, whose story is it and who's telling the story and over what sort of timeline? Uh, in terms of telling great stories, there was also an article, I believe, in Crime Reads. If not, I came across it somehow recently. And it's about spies who write spy thrillers. And of course, one of the right. gold standards is John Le Carre because he created George Smiley, who breaks the mold because he's kind of an ordinary guy. He's not Indiana Jones or wherever James Bond. Has anybody, I'm curious for your response about are the best spy fiction come from former spies. And has anybody questioned your background based on your father? No, not based on my father. Um, but just as to, to Le Carre, Le Carre was a student of English literature before yes. he was part of MI6. He was an aspiring writer before he became uh, sort of a junior spy. He didn't work that long in the spy business, but long enough to produce a, a great novel. And, and what he did, what the spy business gave him, was a, a genre in which he could explore elements of class in English society. Yeah. And his books are spy novels, but they're really novels about love. They're novels about integrity. And they're 
novels about class distinctions. And so the great thing about Le Carre is that, you know, he used the, the bureaucracy of the spy business to really explore a lot of things about English culture. Um, and there's a great story about him because that's his pen name. Right, exactly. And he did it because he was yes. still working at MI6 and they wouldn't let him publish under his own name. And he wanted something, I believe, that he wanted something that sounded cosmopolitan. Right. You were right. So he came up with La Carrier, which is how everybody knows of him and who he, who he was as a writer. I thought that was interesting how he wrestled with how to change his name. Right. And when his wife's obituary, she just died, um, was done, she was Jane Cornwall. Right. <laughs> just, uh, and he was Cornwall, but uh, you had to be an insider to know that. All right, so the time we have remaining, because there's never enough time with, with a great guest, is I want to jump to, I believe, in 1991, and a ceremony where they put the star up on the wall at the CIA. And I don't want to get too political, but I remember when the former president went there right. and, did, and did a disservice, quite honestly, early in right. his term. So that's a great scene because a reporter pulls aside the acting director of the CIA and he says, to, what, well, you tell us what he says to Hart, because it's very illuminating. Uh, well, he says, and I'll, I don't have the exact words, but he says, you know, uh, a soldier's business is to kill, basically. Right. Right. And uh, you strip away all the glory and all the fanfare about spying. And a spy's business is to lie and deceive <laughs> and to born. And... Uh, Instead of taking away the mythology of spying, um, as he's talking about this this spy who sort of sacrificed himself um, in the service of the United States when he himself had an ambiguous national sort of identity. All right. So almost out of time. Quick response. I apologize. But I know you've done a bunch of interviews. You did one for Spyberry, I believe, in England. Yes. And they, they loved you, I'm told. So in the, all the interviews that you've done for this book, The Mercenary, has there been a question that should have been asked, but hasn't been asked as you as the writer and creator of the book? Uh, no, there's no question that, that I wanted asked that wasn't. Everything has been asked. Um, there probably are questions that they could ask that, you know, but... Uh, I haven't had, I, I don't know what they are. <laughs> well, here's how we'll end it. We'll leave that to the next interview to ask that question. It hasn't been asked yet. <laughs> uh, my guest has been Paul Vittich. The book is called The Mercenary Paul. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's wonderful to talk with you, Larry. It's, All right. Take it's care. It's a delight. Okay. All right. Thank you. After the break, we're going to focus in on Josephine Baker's cinematic prison with the author, Terry Simone Francis. I'm Larry Davidson, listen to the podcast, Arthur Periscope. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. My guest is Terry Simone Francis, the author of Josephine Baker's Cinematic Prison. She's an associate professor and director of the Black Films Last Archive 
at Indiana University. And I want to use her own words to start and see if I capture them correctly about this amazing book. And quite honestly, 30 minutes is not going to do justice because if you were teaching this in your class at Indiana for a whole semester, that's what this book deserves. So if we miss a lot of the important things, you will fill in because there's so much rich history in this book that I read it, but I'm just saying, man, there's a lot to talk about. So I'll do as much as I possibly can, but people should go out and get the book if they you know, want to learn about Josephine Baker. So here is your words if I capture them correctly. I have hoped that my writing about her would feel like a duet and collaboration between Baker and me. As an author of her film's history, we frame one another waywardly, faithfully, and tenderly, while naturally retaining our pleasure in opacity. You want to follow? Did I capture that correctly, Terry? That's it. I actually remember writing that in the room <laughs> where I'm sitting <laughs> as we've all been at home for a year now. Yeah, I, yes. Um, I hoped that it would be a duet. I began the project with Josephine Baker as um, a shimmering, fascinating object out there. And over time began to, to develop a deeper understanding of her career. Right. And then, of course, learning about her changed me as well. So I, I posed the same question to the first guest. As, as a writer, thinking about your readers or your students, in a sense, do you lead and we follow like a dance because you write about a very famous dancer, Josephine Baker. Oh, that's a really great question. Who, who leads? It certainly is a dance. Um, I, in our, in my case, the dance is between what the reader brings into the book in terms of knowing Josephine Baker, perhaps as a celebrity, um, recognizing from the cover her famous, you know, banana dance right, right. Uh, routine. And, um, and then I just kind of, uh, just kind of ease us into thinking about Josephine Baker as a maker of performance as a subject uh, and as um both a spectacle for us to look at together as readers and writer, right. but also a specter, a spectacle, a spectator mm -hmm. in her own right. And that Baker was also a reader. All right. So I'm going to ask you a personal question. Mm -hmm. That um, there's a writer who created P Valley and some other things called Katori Hall. And she said, the African-American experience comes from many different rooms. What room did you come from growing up as a person? The African-American experience in many different rooms. Comes from many different rooms. So I saw it as fascinating because everybody thinks you come from this place and that means everybody's like that. Yeah. Any group. We all come from different backgrounds, different heritages, different wants, different likes. So I want to learn a little more about you because I love what you do with this book. But let's talk about you. Yeah, okay, a little bit about me. Well, I, my room would be the Jamaican room. I was born in Kingston, Jamaica in the early 70s and um, 
my family. Um, well, I migrated with my parents in, um, the, I think that must have been 1981, about 40 years ago. Uh, grew up in Florida and um, was kind of always, in a way, how I am now, just like a reader and a writer there at Val's Prep preparatory school for boys and girls in Kingston right. and um, coming up through the public schools here in the U S and then, yeah, that's I, my room is the reading room, uh, the writing room and the Jamaican immigrant room. <laughs> wow. Well said, well said. <laughs> um, I am a big fan of the history of the blues to what degree when Josephine Baker was performing in the USA influenced by the blues and I learned this. I never knew this. I always thought of her as an actress. To what degree was Ethel Waters a blues singer? She was a blues singer in the sense that she 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 had her own roots in the blues, but then she was kind of this concert performer right. that brought the brought a blues style into the mainstream for wider audiences. And I think Baker saw that and really liked that idea. I also believe one of the most important books for last year, this year, and beyond is cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Oh, yeah. And she also wrote The Warmth of Other Suns. And where am I going? I'm going with something was called the Great Migration from the South to the North. But Baker did that. She migrated from America to France. What was the genesis of that? Well, the genesis was, I mean, first of all, her own migrations within the U.S. from St. Louis to New York City and all those places in between where she traveled as part of the different vaudeville groups and off-Broadway groups that she participated in. So she was, in a, her own way, already a migratory traveling performer. Right. And then she... Uh, apparently wanted to go to Europe, saw Europe as an important destination, and then received an invitation from Carolyn Dudley, who Dudley Regan, who was a um, like a diplomat's wife, socialite producer, um, kind of cultural happenings maker, and she um, was putting on this show in Paris and invited Baker to be on the show. I believe she initially invited Ethel Waters. Right. who turned down the opportunity, but Baker seized it and negotiated her salary. My guest is Terry Simone Francis, the author of Josephine Baker's Cinematic Prison, which is a fascinating title and a great book cover, by the way. This is what I thought of when I, and I'm going to mention somebody else who was a previous guest named Ray Rickman from Rhode Island. He has a program called Stages of Freedom. And he, every, every day does a different program. And earlier in March, he did a whole program on Josephine Baker. And I saw it because I'm on his list and there are pictures of her. And I saw a short, short video of her dancing. I'd never seen that before. You probably have because of the archives. But this is what came to mind. I remember the first time I went to see Alvin Ailey and Judith Jamison dance Revelations. Mm -hmm. So that's my frame of reference of an oh wow moment. Mm -hmm. So when people are seeing her, Dancing for the first time, what was their reaction? Wow, who is this? What's going on? 
And that was on both both in the U.S. and in France. In the U.S., she was much loved as a comedy performer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, her shtick was that she would perform in the chorus line and play the girl at the end who didn't know any of the steps. And that's when she starts doing her funny faces and rubber legs and the Charleston dance and all that kind of stuff. Let me interrupt and, you for a second. Sure. Because there's a reference in your book of Richard Pryor. Eddie Murphy says he set the standard for every comedy change from Richard Pryor on. Yeah. She was a comedic dancer. And I mentioned why I mentioned Richard Pryor. I believe comedians are truth tellers. So as a comedian, comedic dancer, what were her truths? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, the truth that I found in her dancing was that that's where she based her or her authorship like that one of the real riddles about josephine baker is is she original or not is she the creator of what she's doing or is she embodying stereotypes and um you know kind of a colonialist imagination and by look for me by looking at her comedy dancing i saw her as somebody who created something created a performance which in paris is it is a wow for people but it's a wow in a different way even though she's doing very similar movements is there an aspect that the audiences in america Mm -hmm. watching her performances especially her films had much different reactions the audience in the continent oh yeah they really did i mean her um now, when I looked at her, looked, looked at the reactions of American audiences, I was focused on Black American audiences through the Black press. So it's kind of a special, it's like a doubly specialized audience that I looked at. With well, a different they, lens for you, in a sense. Right, exactly. And they uh, they really liked her live performances in the U.S., you know, before she goes to Paris. And they were I think, a little bit critical of the films. They were lots of optimism and excitement that the Josephine Baker would, you know, starring in a film like that significance, you know, wasn't lost on 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 the cinephiles of the black press. But the, they were really rigorous in their critique of her films, um, which they were not pleased with. So let's let's talk, let's explore the film career, mm-hmm. which is a really important part of the book. The first film was silent. The other films were talkies. So I'm asking a general question because I'm not well as well versed as you are. And, okay. and the obvious question is, did the camera love her, and how choreographed were her films? Oh my goodness, you have got the juicy questions. Did Can we the, stop here then? <laughs> yeah, it's really, yeah, this is because the crux of it is the, the camera loves her in the sense that it, looking at them now, it must have loved her because she is the luminous reason that these films are still around and anyone's watching them right now. But at the time, I don't think the camera loved her enough. I think because the structure of her films are um, are like these romantic comedies, like romantic comedy musical, right. also colonialist. And the 
the love, her love interest is a kind of camera who's in the film and he does not see her. He's, he's always looking over here at this other, this other woman. Meanwhile, she's like, hi, John. Oh my gosh. Let's, we're going to go here. We're going to do all of that. And he's just sort of like not there at all. And, um, and in both princess Tam Tam and Zuzu, and thirdly, the siren of the tropics has a, a kind of dynamic like that, where she's interested in someone who isn't interested in her. Princess Tam Tam has sort of a, I guess, a happy ending for her, but uh, but it's it's complicated. That so the camera, I think the technical camera did love her. Um, she looks great. They found a wonderful way to bring sparkle to her character, but narratively, and uh, in terms of this, like romance non-starter um i don't think the camera did love her actually i'm gonna hopefully quote wb du bois correctly if i'm not please tell me but he he, he dresses something called tunis and i'm gonna go back to zuzu because there's a scene in there called um the mirror sequence mm-hmm. as a film expert what is going on there is that an aspect of tunis Oh, right. Um, Tunis, um, um, the, the Negro ever feels his Tunis, two d- warring souls in one dark body. Yeah, that's from um, Souls of Black Folk. Uh, you could say that. I mean, in that sequence, you're talking about Zuzu as a young, as a little girl, right. looking into the mirror. Yes. Um, mm, it's Tunis. In this, in this, it's the other part of that quotation where Du Bois goes on to talk about the, a white gaze that is looking in on Black Americans kind of doing whatever they might be doing. And in that sequence, not only is the little girl Zuzu looking at herself in the mirror and kind of, you know, we could think about her negotiating her performance as well as who she would like to be, but she's also being watched in that process. And that, I think that's a really important part of the element too. Uh, You talked about princess Tam Tam. Mm -hmm. Based on your research, is it considered an antique musical? Hmm, An antique musical. I pulled that out of the book. I don't know if I pulled that out properly, but. Did I say that? I, I, I could be something I pulled out because I do remember something you referred to. And I think this was that particular film as her statement about being an anti-musical. I don't know if that's not the show to be in time, typecasted or what. So yeah. I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. Are you saying anti-musical or anti? A-N-T-I. Oh, okay. I heard yeah. antique and I was like, oh, that's an interesting term. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. All right. No, A-N-T-I. Yes, I can. I don't recall exactly why I said that, but I can certainly imagine how that might be true. I mean, there's so many pages in there, Um, (laughs) but yes, the um, in the sense that it's she does perform songs in the film. They are somewhat integrated into the narrative. But there's a way in which, like, so musicals have um, have a deeply integrated world. Like the singing world is even more the real world than what we're, you know, the talking world that's on the screen. 
Um, and the singers are kind of in sync with what's going on. And I think with Baker in Princess Tam Tam, she is very often the only musical musical person. She doesn't sing with anyone. Um, she is she, which kind of tracks with the movie as a a vehicle for her performance. She's the she's there actually just to be Josephine Baker. Um, so I think in that sense, it's an anti-musical. And then that film is a film within a film. Right. Um, Baker's character is a shepherdess, I guess is the professional term. And she is sort of conscripted into this narrative by a, writer, a French writer who comes to North Africa to, um, you know, to, to fix his writer's block by being inspired by the other and the exotic and stuff. So he's there in North Africa, runs into her and, um, and gets this idea that he's going to write, he's going to bring her into his house and just kind of, I don't know, just like experiment with her feelings, like pretend to be in love with her, teach her how to, to eat um, in a different way, bring her around his other like horrible <laughs> European friends and stuff. And then he's just going to write that story. Um, but she ends up, you know, she ends up, you know, apparently, I guess, having real feelings for him and wanting to go to Europe with him and stuff like that. So the film really goes in between that. And there's a weird way in which when she sings these songs, you get this sense of an interior person. person. Yeah, it's really... It's it's a deep movie in its own way. I'm going to play with the title of your book, Josephine Baker's Cinematic Prism. Hmm. In a sense, it's also a kaleidoscope. You know, I remember as a kid playing with kaleidoscopes and you can have shifting images. Yeah. And I think in a sense, looking at Josephine Baker, a lot of her own personal images throughout the course of her, her life are constantly shifting. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, they're constantly shifting and any one image seems to contain the others so that even even in like the film that we just talked about and you and your citation of you know, Du Bois's Tunis idea that when you, when when we see an image of Baker, we, we need to also realize that we're seeing how she's being looked at. We're seeing her stage performances, the um, the, the public personas that she presented right. to the press, and you know, kind of all of those things are kind of moving together, and the and that they are partial. Just like the thing about a prism is that they're kind of these it's a tri these triangles that are at angles into a whole, and I think that's an important part of you know the cinematic prism as well. Right. I'm gonna make connection between three names, all of them start with the letter B through the course of history. Okay. And let you amplify on that. Bartman, Baker, Beyonce. Mm. That's, in my mind, there are connections, different eras, different centuries, but I know a little bit about Baker. I know a little bit about Beyonce. I didn't know anything about Bartman. So who first, let's start with Bartman. Sure. Sarah Bartman was a South African woman performer who traveled to London and then to Paris, uh, where she died, as, um, as a, a singular performer who would kind of stand uh, sometimes in a cage, sometimes 
on a small stage outside of her cage. And her performance was just the display of her body, in particular, an emphasis on her rear end. So it was, um, it was um, um, a, a performance that is often evoked with a great deal of um, like grief and mourning right. for her, for her ambitions. She because she took the the she thought she was taking an opportunity to make money for her family. She saw it as you know she's a creative person. You know, like do you know what I mean? She kind of had a certain um, ambition for what she wanted to do and and was betrayed by it. And in the at a certain point in her career, an abolitionist society in London um, attempts to uh, free her. She resists this freedom, and um, and during the um, trial to free her, um, there's a very interesting dialogue about her saying why she's doing what she's doing, what her working conditions are, um, and this um, this uh, it, it's like partly it was partly an anti-slavery society and <clears throat> and a society that was trying to establish business in Africa. So they had sort of I don't know mixed motives about you know people returning to the continent and so forth. So but if I can was, throw another word because I th- I know you address this and I think it's appropriate uh-huh. and applicable to the other two names. She experiencing what she would call having her own agency. Yeah. I mean, agency is so complicated um, because I think most people will look at Bartman and find her to be a figure of no agency. And, uh, and I think that they would probably be mostly right about that. It was, seems like a very degrading performance and the, and that it's, and also degrading that it's just kind of based on the idea that her body is just available to, to be displayed and, um, you know, and that there, she's like a completely different type of human and she's just a regular human, you know, like as we all are. So with um, Baker, you know, Baker, some de- you know, decades later, sort of does step into this fascination with black women's bodies in Europe in particular, the idea that there's something uniquely primitive going on, uniquely erotic um, that is available there. And, um, and Beyonce, of course, has, has that as part of her overall public um, um, energy as well. And but in, it's interesting with Beyonce because it, you know she sees in Baker qualities that she wants for her own performance. She likes the exuberance, the kind of phys- frenetic physical energy that's there. And and of course she's a different kind of performer. She's a band leader. She's a business owner. She's an author. She directs her films. She guards her privacy. I mean, I think. I think a lot of these women can look at Josephine Baker and so many of the early performers and draw lessons for their own longevity. Whether these women survive, Baker had a 50-year career. So I think we can say that she survived. But someone like, I don't know, Dorothy Dandridge or Nina Mae McKinney, there's so many other women whose early deaths are instructive about what it means to have um, a deep sense of agency. I'm going to reference two events 
Mm -hmm. um, I did an interview with the writers Phil Keith and Tom Claiborne, a book called Old Blood Runs Red, uh, about the legendary life of Eugene Ballard, boxer, pilot, soldier, spy. There's one mention of Ballard in your book. But in your, in, uh, I came across an article. I may, it may have been your article. There was a dinner of James Baldwin, oh, right. Baker, and a very young Henry Louis Gates Jr. So let's talk about what that's about, because that interests me. And now I'm also going to talk about another event, not in your book, in New York City, honoring Charles de Gaulle. And I'll, sh I'll amplify on that. But first talk about, you know, this New York Times in the Sunday has a Q&A with writers. And one of the questions they ask periodically, if you could have dinner with three people, who would you invite? Come on. James Baker, uh, Baker, Josephine Baker. Yeah. Baldwin and Henry Louis Gates Jr., who was young at that point. I think he was working on an article for Time magazine. Are you That's familiar right. with that? I am familiar with it. And I know that there was a recent article in Lit Hub about that article, um, which I, forgive me, skimmed. But I do remember um, learning about it um, many years ago. It's I think it's been republished in Southern Cultures, right. Right. Um, if it wasn't published in Time Magazine. And... Um, and I mean, I just imagine them there in Mr. Baldwin's house in the south of France, in the garden, maybe under the trellis, maybe some jasmine. Okay. You know, that's that's I mean, the writer talking in you. Yeah, I just, I mean, what a conversation. Because, you know, young Henry Louis Gates, Yale graduate, um, uh, I, I don't know if he had done graduate school yet, but I know he graduated undergraduate from Yale University and so he's and he's there from another figure of migration from right. i think virginia or the carolinas somewhere in the south and and he's part of that early generation of young black students at yale and so he graduates out into the world knowing who these people are and as a journalist sees their significance only to be rebuffed by time uh, but, but, but historical time, but also, you know, the magazine time. Yeah. Here's, here's the second part of the story. And here's the connection. Oh, yeah, sorry, I, I interrupted. No, you're much more interesting than I am, quite honestly. Here's the connection. I, I do know from the book, All Blood Runs Red, there may have been a romantic involvement with Josephine Baker and Eugene Ballard. Josephine Baker babysat for his children. Both of them were spies. Huh. Both got the French Legion of Honor. Hmm. So when Charles de Gaulle came to the United States, there was a function. Baker was inv invited, and Eugene Ballard, now living in America, was invited. Charles de Gaulle comes over to where um, Eugene Ballard is sitting and remembers him. Because he fought both in World War I, first as an infantryman, and then as a pilot. And he also fought briefly before he was injured again in World War II. And there's a picture in the Amsterdam News of Eugene Bullard and Josephine Baker embracing each other. What a great story. What a wow. great story. And that's because that's a benefit of I have access to people like you, people like Phil Keith and Tom Clavin. This is the beauty of what I do. 
getting access to this information. So the last question I will ask you, will be two questions maybe. Do you remember the first film that you saw that ever really captured your attention? Hmm. Yes. Um, there have been different kinds. Can I have different answers? Oh, feel free. I mean, one answer is, um, oh, the title just went out of my head. It's Michael Rogerson. Oh, Come Back Africa. Okay. It's a, a great film about um, that he made, or maybe his father made, actually, in South Africa in just before, as apartheid is kind of locking down in the 50s. I loved seeing Miriam Makeba and um, and the great journalists of Drum Magazine. It just looked like, it just looked like an amazing world to me. Um, I vaguely remember in Jamaica, maybe seeing a screening of, um, of, um, of um, maybe it was The Wizard of Oz. Uh, it was some like, I, I just remember a storm and every time I see stuff, I, I, or every time I see that film, I try to remember, is this what I saw when I was five or six um, at the Marcus Garvey Cultural Center? There was like a screening space there. Um, but Losing Ground was, is my main film, this film by Kathleen Collins that I saw in graduate school. And, um, and that disappeared for a while. And I ended up encouraging um, Kathleen Collins's daughter, Nina Collins, to bring that film back to us. And um, she did all the work. And it's now with Milestone Films and screening on Criterion and other places. So you know, It's interesting yeah. you reference South Africa. One of the joys that I have in the past is I interviewed Dugard's daughter for a book that she wrote. Right? Oh. Dugard, from very famous person from South Africa. So oh. that's, it's funny how the connections are made. Yes. Um, I can go on and on. You have a busy life, but we have an open invitation for you to join us anytime you want, because there's so much we didn't talk about that we will, let's follow up if you don't mind. I would love to follow up. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Um, my guest has been Terry Simone Francis. The book is called Josephine Baker's Cinematic Prison. I'm Larry David, and you're listening to the podcast, Full Periscope. We leave you with just a thought, commentary from Tom Clavin. Well, I wanted to say a few words about Phil Keith, uh, who passed away on March 10. Uh, and I think to talk about Phil and our collaboration on the book, All Blood Runs Red, uh, about Eugene Bullard, um, I have to go back to talking about Phil when I first met him. Don't worry, I'm not gonna go into a long memoir-like <laughs> reminiscence here, but I think it's important. Uh, Phil had had a career in the military and had been retired from the military for a few years. It also had a career in the business world, but uh, he always had a desire to be a writer. And when I met Phil, it was because I was conducting a writing workshop uh, and uh, Phil decided to attend and he was the the main purpose seemed to be that he was finishing a novel, uh, which uh, eventually was, uh, was was published. I believe the title was Animus, and I'm sure people can find it uh, on 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 uh, probably not in bookstores, but probably on Amazon. But when when I was seeing samples of what Phil was writing, it was really more about uh, military matters, and 
it occurred to me that uh, he's somebody who had had a good amount of experience in the military that that uh, he might not want to consider fiction so much, but be because he I could see he had skills as a reporter, and I thought if the right topic could come along, um, and Phil being a Vietnam veteran, um, you know, he could really make make something work uh, out of that. And it was you know not too long after Phil had, and I had gotten to know each other and become we were becoming friends. It was more than just I was the facilitator of a writing workshop and he was one of the attendees. Um, that uh, uh, I saw on uh, the the cover of the New York Times a photograph showing President Obama. This is probably going to be, I'm going to say, around 2010. Um, giving a presidential unit citation to a uh, army company, uh, and during the Vietnam War, this army company had really distinguished itself um, with uh, having having survived a massive attack uh, by North Vietnamese and Viet Cong troops and. A number of medals had been given out, but it turns out in the intervening years, I believe this event happened in 1970, the paperwork, a lot of the paperwork had been lost. And so the company did not really receive the recognition it should have until many, many years later. So I believe it was the 40th anniversary of the uh, the action that, that uh, was the occasion why President Obama was given the award. And... <clears throat> I contacted Phil and I said, please make sure you, you look at the um, um, uh, uh, paper today because, and he said, I was just going to call you about that. He has seen it too. I said, I said, Phil, this story is yours. This, this is your story. And uh, he started to dig into it. And the result of that was um, uh, his, his first book uh, to be published um, by, I want to say, a mainstream publisher, I believe it was St. Martin's Press, that, that issued his, 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 his book uh, 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 about this Vietnamese, uh, Vietnam War company. And Black Horse Riders was the title. And it was exciting to see Phil go through this process because uh, I mean, it was exciting for me because I, I, I had come up with the original idea and I saw in Phil that he had the ability and the desire to do this kind of nonfiction story, but also to see somebody going on this journey of discovering. I mean, he started to track down the individual members of this army company and, and the, and Captain Poindexter, the commander who was living in the Texas. And he interviewed dozens and dozens and dozens of people. And the book was very well received. And, and in fact, prompted St. Martin's to want a sort of a sequel because the, this company, when it was supposed to be standing down, ended up in another uh, action where it was do or die uh, Firebase Illingworth became the second book, and so Phil was was launched on his on his writing career, and uh, and uh, we were on separate paths. I mean, there was never any intention for us to collaborate on something, and 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 but but we had become good friends by then, and um, and then the the our mutual friend uh, Joe Shaw, who's a newspaper editor, had had mentioned uh, the story, he'd seen a little item about Eugene Bullard, uh, a, a African-American fighter pilot. Phil had come across a footnote about him and some research he was doing for a book on World War One, And um, I was basically, we batted it back and forth. Well, well, why don't you do it? If you want to, why don't you look into it? No, why don't you look into it? So we sort of compromised and said, well, why don't we both look into it? And then if one of us wants to run with it, you know, we'll defer to the other person. Well, we never got to the point to, to defer to the other person because the more we found out about Eugene Bullard and not just being an African-American fighter pilot, but his, his other war exploits and being an impresario and, and, and jazz age Paris and 
his various uh, romantic relationships and the the bold-faced names who considered him a friend, uh, Ernest Hemingway, Scott Fitzgerald, Cole Porter, Fred Astaire, uh, Jacqueline uh, uh, Baker, Josephine Baker, all these other people. Uh, we said, you know what? We Neither one of us wants to release this story, and we both want to do it. So we we collaborated on it, and it was a very good experience. Um, and, and, and when I say that, I don't, I don't say that lightly because some people may recognize this as, there's an adage about don't go into business with your friends. Well, when you write a book together, you're really going into business. You're not starting a company necessarily, but it is, it is first of all, a, it is a business relationship. You have contract terms to work out between yourselves and with your publisher. And there's the division of responsibilities, and there's all of the things that uh, if something goes wrong there, does it spill over into what had by this point become a very well-established friendship. Uh, so we both were, actually, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't speak for Phil. Uh, he seemed to be fine with it from the beginning. I think I was kind of nervous because I had several collaborations in my history, uh, most prominently with my, my good friend, Bob Drury. Uh, but I also had a couple other collaborations that had not worked out too well. I mean, they, they worked out, the books were published, but they were, there, there, there were there were some difficulties along the way, and it, it affected the a, a, a friendship. And so uh, I was kind of nervous about it, but everything went very smoothly, and we were um, uh, excited about the Eugene Bullard story. We worked everything out, the logistics of actually writing a book together, researching and writing a book together. Uh, Phil was uh, very meticulous as far as you know the, a lot of the research that he did. Uh, and and when we turned it in, our publisher was very excited by it and thought it turned out well. And, and uh, as, as some people know, when All Blood Runs Red uh, was published, it was very well received uh, at the hardcover and then subsequently the paperback stage, which is out there now. And uh, our publisher said, you know, what do you guys got next? So we had to scramble a little bit because we had, this was supposed to be a one-shot deal. But we'd had such a good experience working together that uh, that we did another book that we uh, finished. We had turned in the manuscript really uh, two or three weeks before Phil passed away. So unfortunately, he won't get to see the final product. Uh, the book is called To the Othermost Ends of the Earth, and it's a Civil War Navy story, which is kind of unusual. Most people don't know that there was there was actually naval battles in the Civil War, and, and, and in our case, a particularly uh, one that took place between a Union and Confederate ship off the coast of France. So, uh, but thankfully, we were at the point where we were very satisfied with the way the book had turned out. We had done our final revisions. Our editor was happy. We turned it in. So uh, when that book comes out, which I believe will be in March 2022, you know, I, I think it's very fitting, and I'm, I'm glad that the uh, Phil, who had all those years, uh, uh, you know, retired as, as, as an officer in the Navy, uh, that his last book that'll come out with his name on it uh, will, will be a Navy story. So it's going to be bittersweet. You know, it's going to be sad to be doing the post the production chores on this without Phil there to do it. And of course, when the book comes out without Phil there, but there's also a satisfaction knowing that Phil did complete one more book. And again, it was a very, very good experience for the two of us. And so I can have uh, only, only more, even more fond memories than I already have of Phil Keith.
The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tied you to her kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair.